Good morning. Today's scripture comes from 2 Peter uh, 1, 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this, vo- this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Sarah. All right, well, good morning again. I know a couple people have said it already, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, At this time, you know, so my name's Sean. I'm the lead pastor here for Redemption Peoria. I usually would tell you guys about um, Redemption Church and how to get connected. Communities are the main thing. We'll get to the five solas, blah, blah, blah. The most important thing we could talk about this morning. You guys done? You done? Okay. So before we ever planted a church on Sunday mornings, in October, we, uh, we said, let's get the communities that we have together. Let's just get together and meet on glorious combat called volleyball. And we got together and... Uh, the Myers community made it to the championship. There were five communities at the time, and we lost in the championship. That's fine, I know. The second time we were meeting on Sundays, the Myers community, all the RCs met together, played volleyball together, Myers community made it to the championship and lost. Third year, Myers community made it to the championship and lost. At this point, Buffalo Bills, you guys get it. Fourth year, fourth year, didn't even come close to the championship. Just, it was just bad. But this year, so what we did... This year. So every year we would hand this trophy out. Every year we would hand this trophy out. And we engrave the winner, the RC, the Redemption Community. Every single year we engrave their name. And the Myers community has not been on it um, for, well, now five years. But ladies and gentlemen, that has changed. So so to be clear, uh, on WhatsApp, we were like, yes, we finally got it. This is going to... You guys have no idea. Five years of night tremors. It's over for me. Um, we, uh, Stevie, who was on our team, we, we had two teams. Let's just put this here. Um, we had, that might fall. We had, uh, let's just put it back here. Um, we had, uh, we had uh, two teams, and the team that won, we had Stevie. Stevie was all jacked. We were all jacked. Stevie proved the word of God to be sure and steadfast, as we'll talk about in that he went home that night. He's a GCU student on his longboard. We're on a high from winning, bragging how we're so much better, not just at volleyball, but as being humans than everyone else. And, uh, and Stevie crashes, breaks his collarbone, concussion, ER. So I might get struck by lightning. We'll see. But I'm going to enjoy this moment. We won. The surprise community didn't win. Okay. But what was funny is, if you're not aware, is it's always the weekend before Halloween, and we dress up as uh, some kind of character, and, and then we, you, know, you start with a certain amount of points. And, but there's two communities who dressed up as Sean's. 
And at first I was like, this is really awkward. And last night I found myself going to bed laughing at some of the things. It was so weird. I mean, dress up as basketball, Sean. Remember when I had my broken ankle, broken ankle, Sean? Easter, Sean. One was a turtle, Sean, my turtles, because we have turtles. I didn't know what to do with it, but then I found it hilarious. They got first place in the costume, so I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, (laughs) the Lord. You get a trophy with the Lord. Um, Let me pray. This morning, we're going to start in, um, we could take that down now. Um, We're going to start something different, and if you are not aware, uh, at Redemption, we really believe the best way to understand the Bible is to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We found ourselves in a little bit of a pickle coming towards the end of the year because Ephesians ended, which we spent all year going through. We had five weeks, and then we we're going to start Advent, which we always spend time going to Advent every year. And um, each congregation was kind of left to do what they want to, is kind of be separate. And we don't want to do a book in the Bible in case all redemption, all redemption congregations do that together. And so we decided to go over something called the five solas. And if you are not familiar with the five solas, uh, I'm really grateful, actually, because this is going to be what I, everything that we've designed over the next five weeks is for you, if you've never heard about them and what they mean. So that's what we're in right now. We're going to start that. We're going to go five different weeks five, through the five solas, and, and I'll explain all that uh, up front. But let me pray for us first, and then we're going to jump right in, because there's a lot of history we need to cover uh, to get there. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much for who you are. Uh, thank you for the ability, just even last night, apart from gathering together and, and singing and um, reading your word, we got to worship you through fellowship and competition and uh, being together. And we're grateful for that. We really are grateful that you um, chose to be good to Redemption Peoria in the way that you have. We're in this together, but we need you, God. We really do. As a community, as individuals, as families, we need you. And we would pray that we would never part from you. We would never part from your word. We would rely heavy on your spirit. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So here's where we're going to start. Um, to understand the five solas, we're going to need to do some historical work, all right? And so uh, here's, here's maybe the best place to start, okay? We live in a time and a culture where there are all kinds of denominations, uh, traditions, all kinds. I mean, just even on my way here, I counted, I drove, through, uh, drove by five different types of Protestant evangelical churches, okay? And so in an Baptist church, I drove by a Methodist church, a Nazarene church, two non-denominational churches, just a lot of different churches. And that's kind of the way that we understand Christianity. That's the way the world understands Christianity. For us to understand the five solas, we have to understand that it hasn't always been that way. That at one time in our history, there was one church, okay? It was a universal church. And this universal church, another way to say universal is Catholic, okay? It was a Catholic church. And before we can get to the five solos, we kind of have to understand where we come from. So uh, we wouldn't get to understand uh, history at all unless I show you some kind of confusing uh, timeline. So let me show you a timeline real quick, okay? Uh, a few of you guys have given me laser pointers, and I couldn't find it last night, so I apologize for that. So I'll pretend I have a laser pointer. Um, there's a line all the way to the left, if you can see, okay? That's the time that we're going to pick up on talking about the five solas. Now, here's why this is important. Up to this point, there is one church, the Roman Catholic Church. You could say there's the Great Schism in 1054. There's there's a huge debate with the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Roman uh, Catholics, but we come out of the Roman Catholic tradition, okay? And at that point, something happens where different traditions, different denominations are born, okay? And what happens from being, there being one church, there's four main traditions that come out. The Anabaptist tradition, 
the, the Reformed tradition, which is Reformed uh, Presbyterian tradition, the Calvinist tradition, the Anglican tradition, and then lastly, the Lutherans, okay? Those are the four main traditions that come out of Catholicism. Now, what takes place in that moment is something you might have heard this term before. It's called the Protestant Reformation, okay? Now, to explain the Protestant Reformation, let's stay as one church, okay? So let's say it is the year 1400. It's the year 1400, got 100 years, we're still kind of just trucking along, you have kids, you got a family, you're doing your thing. The church has been in power since Constantine, 397. It's been the main go-to. It has been the stable force in the known world, but specifically in Europe, okay? Now, here's something that's going on in all of the people. How do I get saved? Like, I want to know how to be saved. The world is what it is, but I want to get saved. Now, we... As a people, we, we live in a very spiritual culture, but not very religious. This is a very religious and spiritual culture. And so they're looking to the, the, the group, the thing that has been holding it down for a thousand years. And that's the church. For a thousand years, when towns are built, no building is allowed to be built taller than the church. The church tells you what time it is by their tower, by the bells ringing. Even the monastic movement brought about all types of uh, medicinal advancements. I mean, you even now, St. John, St. Luke's, these are all out of the church being the stable force in these towns, in these cities, providing medical care. And so the church has been where you go to. And if in your heart you're going, how do I be saved? I want to be saved. What is after this? I don't know what to do. Now, here's the problem. You go, well, man, you don't know what to do. Just read the Bible. Well, they couldn't. The, the Bible predominantly was written in Latin, and the, the common person couldn't read Latin. You know who could read Latin, though? The clergymen. And so the church had the Bible, and the church was able to tell you what the Bible said. And the church knows you want to be saved, and so the church began to give ways to be saved, called sacraments. And if you grew up Catholic, you're familiar with some of these sacraments. You have confirmation, you have baptism, you have the last rites, you have uh, confession, which is uh, penance, and we'll get to that in a minute. So in, in, as this kind of goes on and people are looking to the church, they're looking to the church, but there's one leader over the church. And this, again, is a paradigm shift for us, right? Like um, the elders are the elders of Redemption Peoria, and we can't go and walk into Horizon Community Church and go, this is what's going on. We don't have authority there. But imagine one person overall who's the descendant spiritually of Peter, and that's the Pope. So to, back to this timeline. At the time of this timeline, uh, at the time of this timeline, you have Pope Leo X. And here's what's going on. People are going, how do I get saved? How do I get saved? Church, tell us, how do I get saved? Well, Pope Leo X is part of a long line of popes um, that slowly began to allow corruption um, to fester. And, and there's, this is a, it needs to be teased out. It's not only just corruption. It's not like he's a terrible human being, but um, he, it, there's just, it was a mixture of maybe good intentions, bad ways to do it. But here's what Pope Leo wants to do. He wants to restore some churches, specifically St. Peter's Cathedral. And in wanting to restore these churches, he needs money. Now he needs money. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to go to the people in the church and he's going to say, okay, you want to be saved. You're looking to me. To, to help you get there, well, here's how I can help. When you die, before you go to heaven or hell, you're going to be in this period, this time uh, where it's kind of in the middle. It's called purgatory. And as you sit in this middle place, your good works will determine whether you go to heaven or where, whether you go to hell. And so I can offer you a way to get out of purgatory or at least shorten that time. 
And so he uh, creates this thing called indulgences. An indulgence is a piece of paper. It's written out, so-and-so, blank, will be able to enter in heaven, remove themselves from purgatory. And here's, listen, you want to go to heaven. We want to establish the church here on earth, right? You want to help with that. Give us $100. We'll give you this indulgence. I'll write your name on it. Hold tightly to that indulgence. Don't let it go. And you will be able to get out of purgatory and go to heaven. This is that timeline. Up to that line, all the way to the left that goes vertical, that's where we are. Now, there are many people who are seeing this going on, rightly so, and saying, that's not okay. Guys like John Huss, John Whitcliffe, John Huss was burned at the stake because he pushed back against what the Pope was doing. Um, And as you kind of find find this timeline, finally, in 1517, um, a man named Martin Luther uh, is on the scene. He's been watching. He is part of the Catholic Church, the Universal Church. He sees what's going on, and he goes, I see what we have, and I've got 95 problems with it, right? Some Jay-Z stuff, but 99, okay? I've got 95 issues with what I see. I've got 95 issues, and so he writes down every issue he sees with what the Pope and with what the church is doing. This is not right. He takes that long list of 95 things, and he goes to a door, and the, the, the door of the church, uh, Castle Church, uh, and as he goes to this church, he nails it to the door of the church, and um, there are a lot of going to be a lot of things nailed. This is where you go to display your uh, disruptance. I don't like what's going on. A lot of things would have been nailed to the door. Here's what we see. He nails it to the door, and people see this, and and along the time, if you know your timeline just historically, something has just been created. It's called the Gutenberg Press. So the Gutenberg Press, up to this point, everyone's got to write down everything that's been written. Well, not for Luther. He puts this on the door. Someone takes it without Luther's permission, takes it, and begins to copy it and distribute it. And so now people are going, Pope, you're saying this, but Luther, he gave us 95 things that are, that, that are wrong with what you're doing. Let me read one of them just so you kind of uh, can be in the, the, the ethos of what's going on. He, this is one of the issues uh, um, Luther brought up. Why does, the, uh, why, do, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and of the dire need of the souls that are there? If he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church, the former reasons would be most just, the latter's most trivial. Here's Luther's point. Wait a minute. If the Pope can get people out of purgatory, why doesn't he just do it out of love? Why does he do it for money? I mean, if he's going to do it out of love, that makes sense. That's just. If he's going to do it for money, I'm confused. Help me understand. And it's just 95 of those. Boom, 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 boom. Now, as you can imagine, the church is not happy. They want money to be be able to build these churches. um, And they call Luther in. And they call him in and they have something. It's uh, the Diet of Worms, which sounds weird. The Diet just means council. And Worms just is the name of the town. I don't have to tell you. If you're German, it's Worms. Um... And so they, they call Luther in. Luther has to stand before the leaders. And they say essentially this. You can be excommunicated, which means you're removed from the church, which essentially means eternal death. Or you can recant. You can say, I was wrong. Luther sits there for a little bit. He asks for a day to wait. Comes back the next day. Says, I can't. I can't, I can't say I was wrong. I, I'm, I can't. I'm sorry. No. And it's bad, right? 
And from that moment, there is a protest. The root word for Protestant is protest. And we get the Protestant Reformation. There are people at that moment who see what, saw what Luther did, other kind of groups of people, and they began to break off on that timeline. They begin to break off from the Catholic Church. And we've been dividing ever since, of course. But, but now here we have the break, and this is where we get. Now here's the question. What was the thrust of the 95 issues? What was the thrust of it? What was the, the main problem that Luther, Huss, Wycliffe, what were they seeing? Well, the first thing is this the priesthood of all believers. They saw the church and going, you think you're the only priest, but I'm, I'm reading in say first Peter and we're all called the priesthood of all believers. All of us can go to Jesus. All of us can call each other to repentance. All of us can serve each other communion. This is why we do it. This is why as communities we have over here at the end of service, people are going to come up and take communion and I'm not holding it. We're doing that because of what Luther, Whitcliffe and Huss saw. And so the Reformation is born out of all of us being a priesthood of all believers, but then there were five things, five main things, and it was called the five solas. The Reformation grabbed hold of these things as they saw what was going on, and it became, this is important, the bedrock for evangelical Christianity, which is what we are, for Protestants. It became the bedrock, sola fide, which means faith alone, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, sola gratia, these are all in Latin, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone, and sola de gloria, to God be the glory alone. These were the five things. It wasn't abortion, though you know how I feel about abortion. It wasn't the church being accused about gay rights. You, we've, we've talked through this. No, no, no. Evangelicals, or more appropriately, Protestants, were known for these five things. Things. And this has been the throbbing of our history since Luther na- uh, nailed these 95 things to that door. So, so listen, councils, listen to some of these things because I think it's important. Councils, uh, the Geneva Confession, section 1, 1536, after this takes place. First, we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as a rule of faith. The French Confession of Faith, Article 5, we believe the Word of God contained in these books has proceeded from God, receives its authority from Him alone and not from men. The Belgic Confession, we receive all these books and these only as holy in confirmation of our faith, believing without any doubt all things contained in them are holy. These are confessions to rely on the first sola that we're going to cover, which is sola scriptura. This morning, we're going to start with the time that I have remaining to walk us through what the, the, the big premise of the priesthood of all believers that's going to guide these other principles, which is the Bible alone. Now, remember people at that time could not read the Bible. They had to rely. And so what's happening now, Luther is translating the Bible into English and the Bible's being translated into German, common languages of people at the time. And they're starting to read the Bible and they're starting to see some of this uh, for themselves, right? But there's a problem and we're going to talk about that problem. So here's, here's uh, where I want to start. Why the five solas and why scripture alone where, with where we're going? There are two reasons as we sat down to think about why we wanted to take these five weeks, why go through this timeline, why, why is it worth it? We feel like culturally there's two things going on. Number one, um, evangelicalism is, I don't want to use the word dying, um, is being hijacked. If asked what is evangelicalism, people are immediately going to put um, their dagger in things like um, Republican ideals. That's what, that's when, when, if you were to ask somebody who's not a believer and does not go to church and you go, What's evangelicalism? Oh, they're probably some backwoods Christian who voted for Trump. And that's not like, 
That's honestly what evangelicalism is being known for. It's being known against gays. It's, it's yeah, you're pro-life. It's, it's these issues, and it's not the five solas. And so we wanted to step back and go, no matter how the culture is defining, and hear me, give me grace in saying this, whether Trump calls himself a believer or not, do you understand? Whether he is or not, we take a step back and go, regardless, here's the bedrock of evangelicalism, the five solas. Now, the other side is this. There's a movement amongst millennials, and it happens in every generation, but it seems to be um, a little more on fire amongst millennials, and it's this deconstruction movement. And the idea um, comes out of things like the Liturgist podcast, right? If you're not familiar with the Liturgist podcast, it's a podcast essentially where uh, these these Christians uh, would put their finger on an issue within Christianity and say, let's kind of uh, dissect this, look at it. Some things they say are, are great. I love it. Some things I think are the, I couldn't disagree with more. Regardless of where you stand on literature's podcast, which I don't particularly love, um, is this. They like to ask a lot of questions. And what's happening in the deconstruction movement is we're asking all these questions. Wait a minute. Is hell? Wait a minute. The Bible? Wait a minute. Is God really like this? But we're not arriving at any answers. And so you combine, give me grace when I say this, laziness with curiosity. And so you get a quick YouTube video and you go, oh my goodness, was Jesus even really a human being? Did Jesus really exist? I mean, I just watched this guy for 60 seconds. This is, I don't, I don't believe in Christianity anymore. And so you begin to question all these things within Christianity, but you don't arrive anywhere. So, so I want to turn a little bit and say this. Yes, question. If you do not know your faith, if you do not wrestle with your faith, it's not a real faith. But listen, wrestle with that faith to come to answers. And so if we're saying the answer of what Christianity is, the bedrock, what is uh, evangelicalism is the five solas, that's what defines evangelicalism, then let's define the five solas. And we believe it starts with the word of God. Ultimately, it's going to start with the word of God. So sola scriptura, simply put scripture alone, scripture only. When Martin Luther stood before the diet of worms, this is what he said. Listen very carefully. This is what he said. It's interesting as he says this, just hear hear the details. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason. Do you hear that? He's standing before all these people and going, what's going on is wrong. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is, conscience is captive to the word of God. Do you hear that? He has to be convinced by uh, uh, scripture, and he's, his, uh, he's captive by the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is, is neither right nor safe. And he says in some uh, historical accounts, here I stand, God help me. Um, so here's Luther standing. And he says, listen, unless I see it in the Bible, I can't go with it. Unless I see it in the Bible, I can't go with it. And so we're going to start, if we're going to say we live by faith alone, grace alone, if we believe all glory belongs to God alone, if this is the bedrock of where we are as believers, we're going to see what the Bible says about these things. And this has always been the throbbing. So we could start in, and I challenge you to look some of these up. First Corinthians chapter four, verse six. I think that's a great verse to look at. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Second Timothy three, five through 17. 
Galatians 1, 1 through 8. Um, let me read this one in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. All those verses talk about the word of God, and, and we thought about going to some of those things, but I'm gonna, we're going to go to 2 Peter here in a minute. And the reason I, I, I bring up some of these verses, because you can look them up, because usually what happens is, well, does the Bible ever say it's the ultimate authority? And immediately, the Bible never says it's the ultimate authority in Scripture. But we'll see in a minute, it's pointing us towards the fact that if the Bible said it was the ultimate authority, we would have an issue, wouldn't we? We would have circular reasoning. Well, why is the Bible the ultimate authority? Because the Bible says it's the ultimate authority. Okay, well, who says the Bible's right? The Bible says it's right, okay? So, so inevitably, you're going to run into an issue like that. So what the Bible is doing is it's pointing us towards, way, towards the ways that it is authoritative, okay? That it is the ultimate authority. You can look up some of those verses, but we also have things like Psalm 19, 7 through 9. I actually want to read this. Listen to how the Bible describes itself. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. As you pick up the Bible, you're going to find that it's it's beckoning you to itself. Now, there's a reason that we're going to cover at the end why the Bible continues to tell you to meditate on it, to memorize it. There's a reason for that. And we find most of that reason, and we'll cover at the end a, a, a third reason, most of that reason in 2 Peter. So if you want to turn there, 2 Peter chapter 1 is the text that we're going to cover to argue for what is the bedrock of evangelicalism, the bedrock of Protestants, why there was a reformation, why this is important, scripture alone. Contextually, here's what you need to know. At the time, scripture alone is a big deal because um, Catholics would see the Pope as on par with scripture. So the Pope can continue to reveal what God says in line with scripture. And even what you would find, the Pope ultimately tells you what scripture is saying. You could argue that the Pope actually has more authority. Now we're going to step back and go, no, the true authority, the only authority, the authority alone belongs to scripture. No matter who says what, we're going to the Bible. And this is why. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's a quick context. Peter has been talking about making more sure your salvation, your election, okay? And he's going through and he's telling you to add things to your faith, all that stuff. And now he's going to stop and he's going to say this. I'm Peter. At one point, I stood on a mountain. And when I stood on a mountain, I stood with a couple other disciples and we stood there and we were looking at Jesus. And when we were looking at Jesus, something bonkers happened. We saw him in his glory, You know the glory that Moses had to hide his face from? We saw Jesus transfigured. His body was transfigured before us. I was there. I saw that. Now, I need you to think, if you're Peter for a minute, do you need anything else? I mean, if you saw Jesus, everyone in this room goes, man, I have faith, but it's so hard to believe sometimes. If I could just see Jesus, Peter saw Jesus. Not only did he see Jesus in the flesh, 
he saw him transfigured. This is what Peter's talking about. We're standing there. We saw with our own eyes, Jesus Christ transfigured. Then he goes on to say this, and this is important. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Okay. Um, more fully confirmed is one word. It's the root word is walk. It means to walk more steady. It is more sure. Now, more sure for what? Let's get to there first. More sure to carry you to the dawning day when Christ returns. So this is what Peter just said. Peter just said, I saw Jesus transfigured. And I'm telling you, as awesome as that was, as stable as that was, as sure as that was, as comforting as that was, I have something more sure. I have something more confident. I have something more stable. I have the Bible. I have the prophetic word. Now, Peter obviously is writing scripture here. As he looks back on the Old Testament, I have the word. And and more sure and more steadfast, that's going to carry me to the dawning day, to the return of Jesus Christ, till I see God face to face. It's going to carry me there. It's going to be the word. Uh, This last week, or the week before, uh, I'm sorry, um, myself, John Demeter, Juan, and Charles, uh, we went to a city-to-city conference, which is through Tim Keller. It's a church planning conference. And uh, there's this guy who got up the first night, Charlie Dates, and he just killed it. Um, he, he preached on the enduring word of God. And I, I couldn't help but um, process as he was going through First Peter um, and talking about the, the unending word of God and how it outlasts the flowers uh, or the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. I couldn't help but process this moment, this sermon, um, standing before you guys and thinking, if that's true, if the word of God outlasts creation, you understand? Like, if it's going to outlast creation, what does that say about how we should look at it? I mean, if it's going to continue, if it's the stable and steadfast anchor, it's more sure than seeing Jesus face to face, which is crazy. If that's true, what does that say about the Bible? It's where we go. It's where we go. Hear me. This, this is important. Um, there are a lot of things promising you steadfast and sureness. There are a lot of things promising us steadiness. You think for a moment, oh, so like standing here, if those 7,000 people make it to the border, it's going to ruin our economy. If we don't have Republicans in the house, it's going to ruin our economy. If we don't have this, man, if I had a girlfriend, if I had a boyfriend, if my marriage was this way, if my kids grew up this way, if I had a better job, you think for a moment that's going to provide stable and steadfastness. No, 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 no. Hear me. More sure than those things is the word of God. Though... The, the word of God will carry you to the dawning day. It's what we look to to anchor ourselves to say, Jesus, get me there. Jesus, get me there. And unfortunately, can we just say, as the timeline's there and we follow those traditions, so many churches, so many traditions have begun to rely, and this is not a shot at the bride of Christ, just to know, if you ever leave Redemption Peoria, to find yourself anchored in a place that anchors themselves in the word of God. And I'm grateful for moments when you can talk about five ways to get out of debt, 10 ways to have a better marriage. But listen, having a better marriage will not carry you to the dawning day. Getting out of debt will not carry you to the dawning day. Scripture alone will carry you to the dawning day. 
more sure and more steadfast. And unless the Bible has room to breathe amidst the congregation, unless it has room to look at you and go, you're wrong, and you hold up your idols and they melt like wax before him, unless that's happening in Scripture, we're not going to make it to the dawning day. And this is why we have so many people following the faith, and it's become so wide, because Scripture narrows us. And we have believers who aren't looking to it to take us to the dawning day. And so it's going to take away those idols. It's going to have you fight your flinches. It's going to tell you who's the boss. Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Okay, that was, see, Charlie Dates was a black preacher for a progressive. And when he was preaching, place was going nuts. So, <laughs> FYI. Now, <laughs> okay. So, so here, here, here's what's important in, in all of this. We're going to read the next section. But if it's the ultimate authority in all this, I, I want to give a caveat, okay? It's the ultimate authority, but Scripture alone does not mean the only authority, okay? So when you get pulled over this week, and the cop goes, hey, and you go, you're not the authority. Scripture alone is the authority. That's not what Sola Scriptura is doing. Sola Scriptura is saying, yes, the Pope, fine, we can have leadership, but the Pope is under the word of God. This is true for church leadership. This is true for your boss at work, for kids at home. We've talked about this within marriage, that the word of God is the ultimate, the ultimate alone, the authoritative, uh, and all other authorities uh, come under that. Now, there's the first reason, that the word of God is sure, it's steady, it's stable, it's steadfast. But there's another thing that we have to hear what uh, Peter's saying in 2 Peter. We pick it up in verse 20. It says this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, uh, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The part I want you to look at is at the end of verse 20, okay? It says this, knowing first of all, hear this at the end of uh, 20, that no prophecy of scripture. So we, we were just told right before that um, the prophecy of scripture that Peter has, the word of God is more sure than Christ. None of that, as you read in the Bible, okay? No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now there's three views on what this means. What is Peter saying when he says, you have the Bible, it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation. The first view is this. When the writers of the Bible, so you have Jeremiah, when he's writing Jeremiah, doesn't, you know, doubt he's calling it, plan on calling it Jeremiah at the time, when he's writing to the exiles, in that moment, um, the argument would be that Jeremiah was not writing what he wanted. It wasn't his own interpretation, but rather was God was giving him that interpretation. He wasn't looking at a cultural moment going, well, this or that, and then writing his own interpretation. And I think that's a super convincing argument. I might even be able to pr be persuaded that way, but I don't think that's what Peter's talking about here. The second view actually comes from uh, what is going on within the Reformation, the, the Catholic view that um, the average believer, more so even at that time, um, is, is not set or fit to read the Bible. And so they can't come up with their own interpretation. So it needs to be interpreted through the church. So you can hear the word of God, but only as it is through the means of the Pope or the clergyman. Obviously, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I'm going to lean uh, probably the hardest on the, the third view of, of what it's saying. So again, it says this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, someone's own interpretation. Um, I think what this is saying in this moment, and um, I could be convinced otherwise, but I really feel like this is the case, that we need to be careful, even in our own, now in our own tradition, that as we have the Word of God, we're not being like loosey-goosey with it. 
Like you don't get to pick what the Bible means. So it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation, meaning this, as you read the Bible, there's not a subjective meaning. The Bible has an objective truth when it is saying that. It doesn't mean this in this generation, and now the Bible means something else in this generation. I think if you grew up Mormon or you know Mormons, this is where a lot of the continual revelation, this is where it fails them. Because it's like, well, this changed, this changed. That's not what's going on in Scripture. What it means is what it means. Now, how it contextually plays out is always going to be different, and that's great, right? So as I read a scripture that I know I need to love one another, I'm hearing, maybe I don't need to be as, um, bru- I don't need to be as abrasive or whatever it is. That's a way that I can, I can be more soft with, with the people that I know. But maybe you're hearing that going, man, to love one another, I should probably be a little more uh, quick to correct them. I feel like I'm not loving them and, and putting, so we're hearing love one another. That is what it means to love. But the way it's playing out might be a little bit, and that's okay. It has one meaning though. To love one another doesn't mean to not love one another. Now, um, here's why I think the second part, and we're talking about scripture alone, is important. Um, as we see, and I think this is the interpretation, as we see um, our culture and even in the church reading the Bible, we, we would say we, we believe it, but we're, we're doing a lot of gymnastics with it. There are a lot of times where we read scripture and we don't like something. um, And this is where I begin to kind of really press into what's going on in the deconstruction movement. um, Or even honestly with what's going on within modern evangelical at large. The Bible says to love and to have compassion and to start there. But man, the Republican Party seems to want to be starting with somewhere else, right? Or that can be true for the Democratic Party as well. And then, and maybe for the deconstruction, like you're like, I'm questioning all, I'm going through all this. And so you begin to see that the Bible says something about homosexuality. Wait a minute. Whoa. And, and what it's saying, it doesn't, it doesn't come up to your own interpretation. More appropriately, it's not how you feel about it. You're going to feel a lot of different ways and you're going to think this is what it should mean. Now, um, uh, there's a satire, um, blog that I know many of you guys follow called the Babylon Bee, which is hilarious. Um, and I was tagged like 25 times on this last Babylon Bee because they came up with this, uh, Babylon Bee came up, it's a satire magazine. So they write these things as if they're true, if you're not familiar. And they're of course ridiculous and hilarious. Like Joel Osteen gets his butcher's license because of scripture, what he's doing with scripture and stuff like that. Um, anyway, all that to say, um, the Babylon Bee came out with one on Sola Feels. Uh, I would just want to read because I, I think you read it and you go, this actually hurts a little bit because I feel like this is so, it's almost, it's too true. Um, listen to this. I thought this was hilarious. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I plan to read the whole thing, but I won't read the whole thing. This is just this part. Quite simply, this is the leader of the um, influential group of the nation's top progressive evangelical authors and speakers, the person who leads the, pro, uh, um, <laughs> the progressive movement. This is what she said. Quite simply, sola feels means that all scripture Truths only become true once they're filtered through and accepted by our feels. Thus, things that make us feel bad, those are wrong. The things that give us happy feels, those are true, good, and right. At least, that's how we feel at the moment. And I read it and I go, too often, we're coming across scriptures Like we did, so listen, this is important for us to hear just collectively. Like we did in Ephesians 1, and we hear things like, he chose you before the foundation of the world. What? He chose you before the foundation, and you want to go, wait a minute, 
and it says it, and it has a truth in there. But maybe let's not take something so like broad as an argument. We're growing up in a culture, and this is, this is just, it is what it is, right? We're growing up in a culture where like the sexual ethic is becoming so much drastically different than what scripture says every single day. And you look and you go, whether it's an issue of homosexuality or sex before marriage, or even like just kind of a swinger mentality. This is across the board for married and unmarried alike. And you go, well, it's not that bad. It's not hurting anybody. And yet scripture is going, that's great. I'm glad you think that, but this is what I have to say. And no matter how you feel about it, scripture is the ultimate authority. More appropriately, according to the text, no matter how you want to interpret it, it has a truth. It is the authority. It's the ultimate authority. This is where I finished the third thing. And it's not from um, Peter. You can find this in John 1, John 5, uh, John 14 and uh, 17. It's this, um, that the Bible has the ultimate authority and we look to the Bible as the ultimate authority because in the Bible, what the Bible embodies, what the Bible reflects, if the Bible was a person, it would be Jesus. We submit our life to Jesus. And when you study scripture, you're studying Jesus. When you make scripture the ultimate authority, you're making Jesus the ultimate authority. Do you understand? When you reject scripture, when you twist it and turn it, and you have feelings against it, you're doing that against Jesus. John 1, 1, you know this. The word became flesh. That's 14. All this, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. We're told in John 5, the, the verse that I brought up before, in verse 39, that the Pharisees are looking into the scriptures for eternal life. And Jesus says this, but in them you'll find me. And we talked about this like a month ago, right? John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then later in 17, 17, what's he say? He's looking at at, at his disciples, praying for them. And he goes, God, sanctify them in truth. Jesus is the truth. Your word is truth. Here's Jesus. So we read the scriptures to know Jesus well. We look at the Bible and we go, Jesus, you're my ultimate authority. You're my ultimate authority. Because you're my ultimate authority, the way that I can know who you are, how you act, and what you say is found in this book. Man, hold on tight. Our brothers and sisters for a thousand years wish they could get a peep of what you have in your hand, on your phone, in your home. Man, they wish they had it. And we're so lackadaisical with it. We spend so little time with it. Listen, there's going to be a lot of things that come up against it, but the Bible will last forever. The grass will wither, the flower will fade, but the word of God will last forever. To finish, listen to this. I find this highly encouraging. It's from Bernard Rahm. A thousand times over, the death keel of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or uh, psycho- psychology or, um, sorry, or bells, letters, this is, he's, uh, he's English, and classical of modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible. With such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and, uh, and Euro, Euro- Ocean, you guys got it. 
Upon every chapter, line, and tenet, the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions. It's not going anywhere. You want to know why? Sola Scriptura. Because it's the ultimate authority, Christians are always going to find their way to it. We're always going to look for it. And I pray that would be true for Redemption Peoria. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thanks for um, the grace that you give us in your word. The fact, it's grace that you give us your word. Thank you, Jesus, for being the ultimate standard, the ultimate authority. Thank you for being who you are and giving us scripture to know who you are. We submit our lives to you. We submit our lives to you, to no one else. And your word calls us to continue to live on mission before people who submit their lives to other things. And I pray that they would see the goodness of your word in us. Jesus, thank you for uh, the time that we're going to get over the next five weeks to look at the bedrock of what we are as Christians. I pray that everything we do would be revolved around the word of God. We love you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.